This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Hi, good morning, everyone. Today we shall be reading from Genesis chapter 7 and chapter 8. Uh, please do take out your Bibles, uh, turn on your phones, or I guess follow along on the screen as well. Genesis chapter 7, verse 1. The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and two of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals of birds and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. And after the seven days, the flood waters came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On that very day, Noah, his sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kind, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing, as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. For forty days, the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 20 feet. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swam over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. Chapter 8 
But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed, and the rain stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to a rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month. And on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. After 40 days, Noah opened the window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven. And it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground, but the dove could find no place to set its feet because there was water over all the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah and the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again he sent the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there was in its beak a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again. But this time it did not return to him. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Then, Noah said to, then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number upon it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his son's wives, all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on the earth came out of the ark, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. This is Genesis chapter 7 and 8. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Uh, dear Father, as we come before you today, uh, we really want to ask you that you will help us indeed to understand your word. We pray that uh, throughout the whole service today, as we listen to your word being read, as we come together in our breakout groups, as we uh, really reflect on the hearing of your word, uh, it will strengthen in our minds and our hearts the certainty of the judgment coming. It will push us once again to be strong in faith as we wait for Jesus, for that is the only way 
that we can find a safe ground from your judgment. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, in the previous church uh, that I was in, I remember uh, talking to this young man, and he'd actually been coming to our church for quite some time, uh, probably a few months. And then suddenly, he disappeared. He just stopped coming to church. And so I met up with him one day, and I was asking him, uh, what happened? You know, like you came, you were so fervent, you were so on fire, and then suddenly, just as uh, you came, you left. And what he said to me was, he said that when he first came to church, we were preaching on a New Testament book. And so he was really attracted by the love of God found in Jesus. He was really attracted by the grace of God found in the cross of Christ. But then we moved to preaching from an Old Testament uh, book, uh, to, to an Old Testament book, and uh, he learned that God was actually an angry God, and he was angry at sin. He was a judging God, and he was judging sin. And what he said to me was, he didn't like an angry God who was angry at sin, because God was angry at his sin. And he didn't like a judging God judging him. So I wonder whether we ever feel the same way as this young man, whether we ever feel troubled by an angry God who is angry at sin, and a judging God who judges sin. Because today, we really meet that God. So over the last few weeks, we've been going through the book of Genesis. And it's very important for us to keep within the flow and understanding the flow of the narrative so we can see where we are at as we come today to the passage which we are hearing from. So we learned in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that God had made a perfect world. It was very good, in fact. And God, represented by the crown, had made man to rule the world under him and placed him in this good world. But we also saw that from Genesis 3 all the way up to even today, as we look at Genesis 8 and Genesis 7, we see that mankind is on a downward struggle. Humanity is in a downward struggle. So in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve rebel against God and seek to become like God. And their offspring, Cain, uh, murders his brother Abel. There is wanton violence. There is polygamy. There is boasting of violence. But even more than that, we saw last week when Andrew Wong was preaching how uh, the situation had become so bad that in chapter 6, God had said these words. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all of the time. And in verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So in a sense, when God looks at the world, what does he see? He sees evil, wickedness, corruption, and violence. And so what we see really is that humanity is on a downward spiral towards sin, evil, wickedness, and violence. And it's a bit like, it's not as if it's going down gradually. It's going down exponentially faster, right? It's like a, it's like a reverse COVID graph. It's like, the sin and the wickedness and the evil and the corruption and the violence 
is accelerating and is becoming more and more widespread around the world. And so last week, we saw that God uh, was very grieved and pained by the sin that he saw around him. So again, in Genesis chapter 6, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and how every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all of the time. And the Lord was grieved that he made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. Now, what we see here is technically called an anthropomorphism. Okay, so this basically is a big word for saying that God is given attributes of humanity. We don't know God, if God has a heart, and we don't know how God feels emotions, but we are told that God feels like he regrets making man, he's grieved by man, and his heart is filled with pain. And I remember someone once saying that it was like God feels sin in his heart, uh, the way uh, uh, we, the victims of sin, feel uh, pain in our heart. So it's like a brother whose sister is raped, or a father whose son is murdered, or a wife whose husband cheats on her, or a homeowner who comes home to find that his house is vandalized and burned to the ground. And that's how God feels about sin in this world. He's pained and grieved by it. But God doesn't sit on his hands. Because God is God, God promised in Genesis 6 to judge the world. He is a judging God. And he brings judgment through the flood. And that's what we see in today's passage. We see the promises of God in Genesis fulfilled, in Genesis 6, sorry, fulfilled in Genesis 7 and 8. And so what do we see? So God had promised that he would judge the world through the flood. And so in Genesis 7 verse 1 it says, uh, then the Lord said, then said to um, Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and for 40 nights. And I will wipe out, sorry, I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. And pairs of clean and unclean animals, the birds and all the creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as the Lord had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the floodwaters came on the earth. And so what we see here is that we see in several pictures uh, a picture of uncreation. Okay, uncreation. So, when we, instead of uh, going through the, all the narrative, right, because the narrative is a literary, uh, um, uh, uh, I guess, device to show us something that's happening in the flood. As we read through the flood, we are meant to be reminded of Genesis 1 and 2. Because in Genesis 1 and 2, 
it re what we see here is a reversal of uh, what Genesis 1 and 2 uh, was doing. So in Genesis 1, what do we see? We see that at the very beginning, there was water. There was lots of water. Right? And what did God do? God made an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. And he created dry ground. So when we think back to Genesis 1 and 2, we see how in the process of creation, God cleared the water and he made land. And on that land, he made the living creatures live and thrive and multiply. But what do we see here? Instead of seeing uh, Genesis 1 and 2, we see almost Genesis 1 and 2 going backwards. Right? It's almost like Genesis 1 and 2 is in reverse. So let's look here very carefully in verse um, 10 to 11. So if you look at verse 10 to 11, you'll see that there's a reversal of Genesis 1 and 2 because in the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened and rain fell to the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. So we see here what God did in Genesis 1 and 2 in separating the land from the water. What happens now? We see that God starts filling in the land once again with water. And the description that we are given is a bit like, you know, uh, if you see people who are uh, like uh, magicians or whatever and they're trapped in these glass boxes, the water slowly, slowly rises up to cover their head, right? So your ankles, your knees, your thighs, your chest, your neck, your nose, to the top of your head. And that's exactly what we see here in today's passage as well. We see in the description water slowly rising higher and higher and higher until finally all life on earth is gone. So in verse 17, to 18, which we see here. What do we see? We see that the ark starts floating, right? So slowly, 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 the ark starts floating. And then the water rose greatly on the earth and even the high mountains uh, were covered. And in verse 21 to 23, all the living creatures start dying out. And then finally, in verse 24, we're told that the waters flooded the earth for 150 days. So surely nothing can live and float for 150 days. But that's not all, I think. Because when we actually look at the Bible passage itself in its original language, uh, there's something very interesting that is happening. Uh, so as we see, okay, the water has covered the earth for 150. 50 days. But yeah, as we see the narrative, when we read in the NIV, the water rose, right? The water rose. Okay, as we can see here, the water rose and increased greatly. Again, uh, it says there, the water rose greatly. The water rose. But actually, uh, this word rose can actually also be translated as prevail or wind. So it's almost as if uh, what we're seeing here is uh, we're seeing that the water 
is like the enemy of life. And it's prevailing and winning against life. So much so that life is defeated. And so if we look at the uh, NASB translation, which uh, tends to translate things in a very literal sense, it actually translates uh, chapter 7 this way. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, uh, floated on the surface of the water. Again, the water prevailed more and more, right? It was like triumphing and winning on the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered. And then finally, the waters prevailed upon the earth 150 years. Oh, sorry, 150 days. Sorry, not 150 years. 150 days. So as we come to the very, very last, last verse of this passage, we actually see that the waters prevailed and so much so that the image that we are really given now is that uh, at the very end of this, we see that um, the, the, the water is actually defeated everything. So if you think of it, in Genesis chapter 1, all the way up to where we are now, uh, the world has been a place where there is fertility and growth. That's what uh, Genesis 1 and 2 have shown us. And as we've been reading through Genesis 3 all the way to Genesis chapter 6, we see that there has been full of people, right? The whole world now is full of cities and people. But what we see by the very, very end of Genesis chapter 7 is that there is no life left. There is no life left. There, life is gone on the earth. And so the process of judgment and decreation has come Onto this world. So how are we to understand Genesis 7? Then? What's the application for us? Well, if you look at the um, New Testament, the New Testament refers to the flood in a very, very specific way. Uh, it always refers to the flood specifically in terms of warning. The warning that judgment is coming. The warning that if God judges once before, He will judge again. So Matthew 24, Jesus says, as it was in the day of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Therefore, what's the lesson? Keep watch because you do not know what day the Lord will come. Again, the other primary passage that is being referred to in the New Testament is uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, the heavens will disappear with a roar, 
and the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. And so what we see here is that the flood uh, really is a picture of a warning to us here in the post-cross people, the post-cross generation. Because the flood shows that if God could judge the world once before by water, that he can certainly judge it again when Jesus comes by fire. And the warning, therefore, for ourselves is that we must take heed, repent, and keep watch and look to God and not be like the people of Noah's day who did not expect judgment to come and were unprepared for judgment. And so I gave you the story about this um, young man who had come to my previous church who decided to leave the church because he was unhappy that God was a angry God, angry with sin. He was grieved by sin, pained by sin. And he was unhappy because God was a judging God and he didn't like God judging him for a sin. But you know what that approach reminds me of? That approach reminds me of the person who buries their head in the sand and says, I don't like judgment and I don't like a God who is grieved and pained by sin and I'm just going to ignore it. But that's the attitude of the people who lived in Noah's time during the flood. They didn't realize the judgment was coming. They didn't realize the flood was coming. But ignorance and burying your head in the sand does not save you from judgment. And so the New Testament tells us that we are to take heed. We are not to ignore judgment, but to be prepared for judgment because indeed God is grieved by sin and he will judge sin and judgment is coming. And so as we go along to Genesis chapter 8 now, we are given detail after detail of how God remembers Noah and how God acts on behalf of Noah to save the ark as well as the animals. And what we see here is if Genesis 7 was a decreation, then Genesis 8 really is a recreation. And we see that because in Genesis chapter 1, there is this repeated theme of being fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's what the, the, the creation mandate was for the animals and for Adam and Eve, that when God made the world, he wanted them to multiply and fill the earth. And that's exactly the same thing we see here in Genesis chapter 8. So after God uh, you know, makes the waters recede and the dry ground come back again, what does God say to Noah? He says to Noah, uh, go out of the ark, you and your son, your sons, and your son's wives with you, and bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, uh, birds and animals and every creepy thing that creeps on the ground so that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply. Now, if you look at chapter uh, Genesis chapter 1, and look at Genesis chapter 8, you can definitely see that there is a parallel. There's a parallel that's happening here. Uh, God has, in a sense, pressed the reset button and he's reset and started creation again. And so the animals and uh, the man and woman, they go out to fill the earth. And that's what we see in the pictures, which we think of what's happening after uh, the ark 
hits dry land. That's what's happening, isn't it? Uh, there is uh, Noah and his family and all the animals come out and they start repopulating the earth. But what I want to spend time on today is something which I think is a big surprise to us. And what is that big surprise? It comes at the very, very end of Genesis chapter 8. And so what is it, Genesis chapter 8? So if we saw the first picture, we saw that Noah built an altar to sacrifice to God. So let's spend a bit of time now looking at this very, very important verse here in verse 20 and 21. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the grounds, curse the ground, sorry, because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. Never again will I destroy all living creatures as I've done. Now, there are two shocking, shocking things, right? The first shocking thing is what he, what God says in verse 21. He says, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. Now, this is really shocking because... It seems as if God has pressed the reset button. We've had a recreation. And, and even though we started all over again with Noah, God is saying Noah is going to be no different from Adam and Eve. Because human beings, even after Noah, every inclination of the human heart is still evil from childhood. Now that's really shocking because if you think about it, the whole reason for judgment was because of the very problem of sin. So if you remember in Genesis chapter 6, what caused judgment to happen for, by the flood was that God saw that how great man's wickedness was and that every inclination of his thoughts of his heart was evil all the time. The earth was corrupt and was full of violence. But yet here in Genesis chapter 8, God says that the same problem is still there. God says every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. Now that's a really shocking thing because it shows that sin and evil and wickedness and violence is still there after the flood. Even after the reset button is pressed, humanity still cannot overcome the evil in their heart. So that's the first shocking thing. But the good news, the good shocking, other shocking thing is uh, God, for some reason it says there, says that he will never curse the ground again and destroy all the living creatures as he has done in the flood. And so here in verse 22, it shows that the seasons will continue forever and ever. Uh, and it will never be broken by a flood like it has been just in Genesis 7. So the, the shocking and surprising thing is, why is it sin is still there, right? Every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. But yet, God says 
that he will not curse again. The key to understanding what has happened here is what Noah does in verse 20. So what exactly does Noah do that is so special in verse 20 that causes God to make this covenant or make this promise that he will never ever again flood the, the earth and judge the earth by flood. Well, it says there in verse 20 that Noah built an altar and he sacrificed burnt offerings to God and God smelled the pleasing aroma and therefore he made that promise that he will no longer destroy the world by flood even though human heart was still evil. So what we see here is the first, the first sign of how God's anger, God's pain about sin, God's judging nature will eventually be uh, paid for. It would be paid for by sacrifice. And so as we look to what um, uh, Noah did, what exactly did he do? He was a person who was like a priest who interceded for sinful people uh, himself and future generations, and he made a sacrifice. And this was the key to why God relented and God promised never to judge in the same way again. So what we are seeing here is vitally, vitally important for us to understand that the, that the solution for sin is a priest to intercede for people and for a sacrifice to be made so that sin could be paid for in a just way by a just God. And as we look forward to the New Testament, we see that this is actually fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Because in Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, it tells us that Jesus is the, the perfect permanent priest who always lives to intercede for people. So in Hebrews chapter 7, it says, Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save complete those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. He is the priest who is interceding for sinful people. Again, in Romans chapter 3, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no different for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement in, through faith in His blood. And so, in this deep and profound way, we see that Noah provides a model or a type pointing to the final solution for the problem of evil and human heart, the problem of sin in our lives. We see that a priest in sitting for sinful people and sacrifice is the way forward. And, and Jesus is the perfect high priest who intercedes for us. And he is the perfect sacrifice who goes on the cross, to die for us. And so as we come to the very end of this passage, the application, the conclusion 
I really, really want you to consider is do not be like the angry young man who left my previous church, who was unhappy with a God who feels pain and anger at sin, a judging God who judges sin. Because the reality of the flood shows us that God must judge sin. The character of God means that judgment must come. And the answer is not to bury our heads in the sand and say, I don't like God being angry at my sin. I don't like God judging my sin. That is not the solution that the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that the solution is to see that judgment is coming. It is coming because God is grieved and pained by sin, and he must judge sin. But at the same time, God is loving and gracious, and he provides us a way out of sin by providing us a heavenly permanent priest in Jesus and an effective sacrifice of atonement in Jesus Christ. So, as we come to the very end of the passage, I'd like to quickly do two polls with you. Uh, we can't spend too long because we've got a communion after this. And uh, so let me just do quick, two quick polls for you. And the first poll really is uh, this poll, which you should see on your screen right now. So what is God like? It's a multiple choice question. Is he grieved and pained by sin? Is he a judging God? Does he judge sin? Is he a loving God? Is he a forgiving God who forgives sin? Okay, so just spend a moment reflecting on that. And then just answer honestly. Don't worry, it's all anonymous. Nobody will know how you answered. Okay, I'll end the polling now. And uh, as you can see, uh, it's actually a trick question because uh, God is all, all the above, right? I, I don't want to give you the all above question because it will be too easy to click. But God is all the above. God is grieved and pained by sin. And God does judge sin. But God is also a loving God and he's also forgiving God. And we can see that uh, as we look at Genesis chapter 7 and 8. Also, as we look at uh, Jesus Christ. So he is both a judging and a, a God who hates sin. And at the same time, he's a loving and forgiving God. And how that is shown is that he sends Jesus as our the perfect priest who always intercedes for us. And also a God who sends Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. Now, I want to end with another poll. And uh, the poll is, if judgment is a reality as we see through the flood, then how should we deal with the problem of judgment? What is the right way to deal with the problem of judgment? Can I end the polling now? Okay, so as you can see from the polling results, I'm glad that you all um, are not the bury your head in the sand type and pretend everything is going to be all right. Uh, and and, and it, all those things that you all uh, have chosen are exactly what the Bible is saying. We have to take the warning of the flood seriously. We need to repent, accept God's love in Jesus Christ, and keep watch and being holy. That is the way, indeed, the Bible tells us that we should respond. The right and only way we are going to deal with the problem of judgment. So uh, let's uh, close with a word of prayer now and uh, commit ourselves to God. So let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us not to live our lives as so much of the world, pretending that sin does not matter to you, pretending that judgment will not come. For you tell us very clearly 
that judgment will come and we will come unexpectedly. Dear Father, we pray that we will be ready for judgment. We will be ready because we have repented, we have turned back to you, we've accepted Jesus as our heavenly interceding priest, we've accepted Jesus as our sacrifice of atonement. That we'll continue to keep watch and alert and uh, leading holy lives as we prepare for judgment to come. And we pray for each and every one of us that we are not swept up by the, the way of the world, for it is foolish to bury your head when judgment is coming. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.com.